welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Elected leaders are again calling for police reform following the death of Tyree Nichols at the hands of Memphis police. In his State of the Union address, President Biden mentioned Nichols and the pervasive threat police pose to people of color. But there's little agreement on what police reform should look like. Today we'll hear from different sides of the debate and discuss some programs for tribal law enforcement that could be a model for moving forward. That's coming up after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. President Biden, in his State of the Union address Tuesday night, touched on several issues which are priorities for tribes across the country, from economic development to COVID-19 recovery, broadband to health care. Biden mentioned tribal communities in his remarks when talking about the infrastructure law to fund projects and create jobs. The law set aside billions of dollars for Indian country for high-speed internet, water, and electricity projects, climate issues, and a number of other investments. Biden touted work being done by his administration, and he called the State of the Union strong. In statements, Republican Oklahoma Native American lawmakers, U.S. Senator Mark Wayne Mullen and Congressman Tom Cole were critical of Biden's State of the Union. Union, both expressing frustration with the president and saying they did not hear solutions or plans to move the nation forward. In a statement, Democratic Native American Representative Sharice Davids from Kansas expressed a need for bipartisanship in Congress. A similar sentiment was made on Twitter by Democratic Alaska Native Representative Mary Peltola, who called bipartisanship hard and messy, but worth it. Meanwhile, guests at the State of the Union included Navajo Nation President Boo Nigren as the tribe's new president took his first official trip to Washington this week. Nigren was a guest of Democratic Arizona Senator Mark Kelly. And Lynette Bonar was a guest in First Lady Jill Biden's viewing box. She was recognized for helping establish a cancer center on the Navajo Nation. A new clinic in Rapid City, South Dakota, combines modern design and treatments with Native culture. Now, patients are being accepted ahead of the planned construction schedule. South Dakota Public Broadcasting's C.J. Keene checks in. The Oyate Health Center sits on a plot in West Rapid City on the campus of the old Sioux Sand Hospital. Gerilyn Church is president and CEO of the Great Plains Tribal Health Board. She says while bittersweet, leaving Sioux Sand represents a reclamation of tribal sovereignty. There's so much history in that old building. It started as a boarding school, and then it transitioned into a tuberculosis center, and then it turned into a hospital. But all of those entities were federally run facilities. And I think what Oyate Health Center symbolizes is a new era of tribally managed healthcare. Church says embracing sovereignty will have tangible benefits for patients. What we are embracing here is wellness, not only from the physical standpoint, but we support and recognize that our emotional well-being is such an important part of our overall wellness, right? And so when our relatives come into this building, they'll recognize that which is familiar to them. And as a reminder that um, this is a safe place. The new space also increases capacity. So we'll be able to expand our primary care to um, a, a lot more than we um, are doing now in the current facility. But what we'll also be able to do is provide specialty care. 
we have partners in the community that we hope will um, be joining us to for those services that we routinely uh, refer out. The fate of Sioux San Hospital is unclear, and the final decision is in the hands of the Indian Health Service. For National Native News in Rapid City, I'm CJ Keene. NASA astronaut Nicole Mann told U.S. lawmakers on Tuesday she's proud to represent Native Americans in space and hopes to inspire younger generations. We need to inspire the youth. We need to empower them to dream, to help them achieve their goals. And so that's the advice that I would give to that young generation. It starts with an idea, starts with a thought, a dream, but it doesn't stop there. Mann spoke to the U.S. Senate Committee on Indian Affairs on a live video call from the International Space Station. Mann is the first Native American woman to go to space. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean and Walker, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for nearly 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Support from AmeriCorps VISTA, whose members serve to alleviate poverty while earning money for college and gaining professional skills. Rewarding service opportunities can be found at A-M-E-R-I-C-O-R-P-S dot G-O-V slash V-I-S-T-A. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The recent death of Tyree Nichols at the hands of police in Memphis, Tennessee, is raising voices in a nationwide conversation about reforming police culture. Five officers are charged with murder. Seven others are under investigation. There's also been a push for federal legislation to hold police more accountable. The nonprofit Mapping Police Violence reports more than 1,200 Americans were killed by police last year. Separating out the Native Americans in that number is difficult, but one study suggests they are killed at a higher rate than other racial groups. Today on our show, we'll speak with Native law enforcement officials about what can be done to restore trust in police. We'll also hear from critics who say there is no fixing the problem. We also want to hear from you. What does policing look like in your urban or tribal community? What's working and what isn't working? Voice your comments and questions by calling one 800 996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. You can also leave a comment on our social media Twitter handle 1-800-99-NATIVE. Our first guest is joining us from Eureka, California. Stephanie Lumsden is a PhD candidate in gender studies at UCLA. She is HOOPA. Stephanie, welcome back to Native America Calling. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So this is a really hot topic right now uh, all over the United States, not just in Native communities. What do you see as the solution, Stephanie, for police reform? Um, well, yeah, like you said, it's a loaded question. Um, and I guess I want to take one second just to um, think about the far-reaching uh, consequences of police violence before we think about police reform. I think reform... Um, I think people ignore the fact that reform has actually helped the police expand and grow. 
um, reform. Uh, I had a professor who once said, you have to be careful about reform because are you handing, uh, are you actually, are you throwing a brick through a window or are you handing them a brick to build more cells? You know, we have to really think about um, how reform gets, um, yeah, kind of build as a way to fix problems. And it actually always just ends up with more police training, uh, more uh, technology, more cameras, more cars, more efficient ways for the police to do, um, you know, what they're actually meant to do, which they say is to protect and serve. But as we can see in the case of Tyree Nichols, um, that they're meant here to terrorize black and brown communities, that they're meant to uphold white property rights, um, that they're cruel, that they're vicious, that they're a fraternal order of men who have higher rates of abuse than anybody else. Um that there is no reforming the system. So I suppose my answer to that question is a non-answer, which is there's no fixing the police. The police okay. are here to do what they do. Okay. Well, you mentioned um, these statistics regarding higher domestic violence uh, rates amongst law enforcement and protecting white property. Uh, do you share these same views about tribal police and, and native officers out there in the line of duty? I do. And I think it's, uh, yeah, it's a difficult one in our communities because we're so much smaller and it feels um, maybe more intimate in many ways. Like these are our neighbors, these are our community members, these are our relatives. But I also want to really poke a hole in that because that's not true um, on Indian reservations and in urban communities. The police are just like police everywhere else. They aren't necessarily tribal members. Um, in the case of my tribe, there's cops that are um, from like New Jersey that ended up in Hoopa doing policing and they are also doing harm. And so I think um, we really need to quit hiding behind this. Uh, all cops are awful, but not our tribal cops and really need to start to be critical of what the role of policing is in our communities and what we could do without them because they're taking up a lot of room. Now, Stephanie, you refer to yourself as a police um, abolitionist. Can you explain more? What does that mean, police abolitionist? Yeah. Um, well, the language of abolition, of course, coming from the end of slavery, right, the abolition of chattel slavery in the South. So very much those are the original abolitionists. And so that's not an accident, the use of that intellectual gene and activist genealogy. And it's because the same it's the same technology of racialized violence and gender violence. So I, I see a historical parallel right, and not, not a break in that chain from um, the origins of the police as slave catchers and in Indian history, right? The origins of the police is absolutely arresting our resistance leaders, uh, protecting property and uh, rounding up what they would call insurgents, right? Insurgent Indian resistors, um, enforcing us uh, into a U.S. model of of family and ownership and, and like, law-abiding citizenship. Um, mm -hmm. So it's for the abdication of those systems, the ab abolition of this top-down um, hierarchical authority-based and punitive-based punishment uh, model, which is never how any of us governed ourselves before invasion and occupation. Okay, okay, so... Um get rid of the police, uh, this abolitionist movement. So then what replaces the police? I mean, how do we maintain safety and law and order in our communities without some sort of law enforcement presence? I'm not clear. Yeah. Well, I think um, 
that language of maintaining safety is really important because are we safe now? Because um, I'm looking at the rates of MMIP, I'm looking at the rates of MMIW, um, rates of uh, sexual assault and domestic abuse on reservations in our, in our uh, urban and rural communities, not on reservations. And it doesn't seem to me like the police are actually keeping us safe. So it's not that the police maintain safety and security. It's actually that I think they're in the way. Um, so what the, I think the question I think about most in my own scholarship and, and my own just daydreaming about the future <laughs> was, would be um, what safety is possible when we don't have to cater to the police, when we don't have to worry about fixing and changing the police. Um, what could we do instead? And I think, um, yeah, I think that's a much more generative question uh, because the answer could be uh, as big as, you know, community kind of uh, organized meetings and, um, I don't know, like a, like a telephone line of safety. And it could be as mundane and small as like bus passes so that our young people aren't walking home at night. You know, okay, so okay. I think... Yeah. All right. Okay. So yeah, I mean, obviously these are some, some ideas, but I'm just thinking of somebody maybe listening to the show today that that's had, uh, been a victim of a violent crime, uh, somebody who has been abused by a spouse, somebody who has had somebody break into their home. Uh, I, I mean, I think a lot of people would be like, well, wait, this sounds really realistic. Like, I mean, there are certain situations where, where police are, are warranted. I mean, what's the solution in situations like that where, you know, there are, there, are, there are violent crimes that could occur in, I mean, a bus pass or, you know, these community meetings. I mean, how are they going to address some of those those risks and some of those threats that for some of our listeners and, and, and people everywhere, all over the country, not just Native, some of these risks are very real? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I would reiterate that, that the police don't stop that from happening. You call police after something has happened, and generally they do nothing for you. Um, I don't think I have to reiterate how useless the police are in terms of uh, sexual, sexual and domestic violence and stalking and intimate partner violence. Um, this is like a lot of feminist scholars have covered that. Uh, Miriam Kaba and Andrea Ritchie just wrote a book called No More Police, and it's about how they're really useless at intervening in violent crime. Um, so they don't work. Um, I understand the impulse absolutely to call the police because who, when they're scared, isn't looking for help? What do we do? And the police have monopolized us and all of our resources so much that they are the only thing we can do is to call 911. And that's a, a terrible tragedy. And um, you can see how vulnerable it makes us because there's nothing they can do either. There's nothing they do. And um, often when police show up, they do harm especially if they think someone is acting erratically as they might after they've been abused. Um, if someone is incoherent, if they assume something about someone uh, based on a, a criminal record, right? So in many ways, the police are an active harm. So instead of thinking about, well, who's going to save us if our hero police are taken? I think we actually need to think about how the police imperil our communities, Alrighty. Stephanie, thank you for kicking off our show today. And anybody that wants to, to comment uh, on what we've heard so far, uh, what do you think about that? Just uh, removing the police, uh, be, uh, police abolition, just removing law enforcement uh, from our communities for 
some of the reasons that, that Stephanie has shared with us today. If you've got a thought about that, we'd love to hear it. 1-800-996-2848. Now, we are going to have to take a break here in just about a minute and a half, but I would like to go ahead and introduce our next guest before we do that. Speaking with us in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, is David Rogers. He is the CEO of Tribal Public Safety Innovations, LLC. He is Nez Perce, Winnebago, and Lakota. David, welcome back to Native America Calling as well. Very happy to be here. Thank you. You bet. Now, David, like I said, we do have about a minute before we wrap up or for, take our first break, but I just want to ask you if you could explain a little bit more about your work with tribal police departments and, and what's their biggest challenge that they face? Well, I've spent over 40 years in criminal justice programming. I spent 22 years in law enforcement, both with tribal and non-tribal agencies. I've been a chief of police for three, maybe four tribal agencies. And uh, I've spent the other half of my career doing training and technical assistance for for tribal communities and tribal uh, law enforcement agencies and courts, uh, which is what I do now. Currently, and for the last two years, I've been working with the MMIP uh, projects, assisting tribes in developing community response plans for missing person cases in their uh, in their uh, communities. All right, wonderful. And uh, when we go ahead and come back from our break, we're going to ask David uh, to explain more about challenges that are facing police, but we do have to take a short break. Uh, anybody with a question or a comment, any thoughts to share with regard to law enforcement and the whole issue of trust in our communities? We want to hear from everybody today, whether or not you live in a, in a tribal community, in a rural area perhaps, or uh, you live in an urban area. Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Bicycles are for more than just getting around. Tribal programs aimed at getting more citizens on bikes aim to improve both health and environmental outcomes for both urban and rural residents. We'll talk about the benefits of bikes and bike safety. That's on the next Native America Calling. Medicaid Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about police in the wake of the murder of Tyree Nichols. Do you trust the police in your community? What do you see wrong with law enforcement? What do you see right with law enforcement? Join our conversation at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE or post on our social media, Twitter handle 1-800-99-NATIVE. We have David Rogers on the line. He's the CEO of Tribal Public Safety Innovations, LLC. David, biggest challenges facing the police, what are they? Uh, the police in general or tribal police? Uh, tribal police, I think, would be more helpful. Well, I think, uh, of course, I, I can't agree with Stephanie's position, uh, especially with tribal law enforcement. Um, 
Historically, tribes were policed, uh, you know, before the Europeans here. They they had their own system of justice and their own system of policing themselves. Um, after that, the tribes were policed by military and then eventually Indian agent type police and Bureau of Indian Affairs. And then eventually tribes began to evolve their own law enforcement programs. And tribes, uh, ever since self-governance became uh, an, a very important role for the tribes to govern themselves, and including, included in governing yourself is the establishment of your own courts, your own laws, uh, your own policing systems. And so the tribes have worked very hard to get to that point, and we're still creating new police agencies with tribes today because that's a relatively new, uh, historically a new new thing. Uh, the Klamath Agency in Oregon just now in, in the last year established their new police department, as did the Catawba tribe in Carolina. <clears throat> so the tribes have worked very hard at this and um, in establishing their court systems and their uh, policing. It's, it's totally up to each tribe. They're each sovereign. How do they want their policing operation to look? How do they want their policing operation to function? Uh, some adapt a lot of tribal traditional components to it. Uh, some adopt a more, you know, uh, system similar to what you see in the non-tribal communities. But that's their choice. That's up to them on how they want to to establish that. Uh, policing in Indian country is very challenging because we're always understaffed. We're always short-funded. Uh, tribes that have wealth are able to fund their emergency response teams better than uh, tribes that struggle financially. And okay. So, the biggest challenge is, is in in that realm. Alrighty. Um, so some might argue that uh, what you're describing is the colonial model of policing, albeit with, with some native input, but uh, perhaps uh, capitulating in, in in some sense. And uh, obviously, you know, b- abolishing the police might be. Uh, Many people might just think, wow, that's just, you know, maybe a little too far. But I mean, I mean, what about just critics who who will say, look, law enforcement is inherently flawed. There's some really deep, deep fundamental issues with what we're seeing. And we've seen for a long time, only now we're getting more information because of cameras and social media and things like that. I, I mean, what's your response to these critics that, that do have some very legitimate concerns about law enforcement? Well, it is perfectly okay to have legitimate concerns with law enforcement. I think law enforcement has legitimate concerns about itself as well. The, the Tyree Nichols case is 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 absolutely horrible. I don't know anybody that could uh, justify that in any way. But in one sense, the anti-police or defund the police situation is kind of what led to that death. Uh, the five officers who were involved in that were hired after the department had to lower their hiring standards because once the anti-police rhetoric hit out there and numbers of police officers retired and resigned, they weren't going to work under under the conditions that they were facing. Uh, so departments had to lower their hiring standards and bring people on board that would probably never have made it as a cop in, in the prior times. And and so we've seen mass exoduses of police officers from primarily cities. Um, I my office I have an office in Seattle and they're they're 400 officers short. I lived in Seattle downtown for a year and I watched the slow decay of the downtown uh, area as a result of no policing. Nobody's there to respond to crimes. People commit crimes openly without fear. And you've got businesses, mom and pop businesses, closing because they can't stay open. 
because of the the crime and the fear of crime that they're they're dealing with. They just can't afford it. So I think that you have over 700 police working in America, and to assume that 700 police do nothing, cause more harm, is pretty ridiculous. I mean, I watch police officers work every day. They work hard. They work on solving crimes uh, for anybody and everybody, whoever they serve, with what resources they have available. Are there bad cops? Yes, there's bad cops. Are there bad anybody's? Bad priests, mm-hmm. bad uh, coaches, bad anything? Yes, there are. I think the media highlights bad police way more than they highlight good police and the good work that the majority of the 700,000 people are doing out there. Okay. Well, David, I, I want to ask you more about that. You know, some of these models that, that you see that are working and examples of, of law enforcement, especially tribal law enforcement that are, are doing things right. But before we do that, we want to take a call. We have Donna, who is listening in Wasilla, Alaska on station KNBA. Donna, great to have you on the show. Oh, good morning. Yes, uh, I definitely have a comment because I've had a lot of incidences with the police, and uh, most of it was for protection. You know, I'm in my 70s, and late 60s has started, and uh, I've had to call them. And they've been there, and I've had all kinds of different episodes, probably about around 15 episodes And most of them were okay, but I began to realize that they have a stress level that is off the charts. And so you have to be very careful when they get there to explain the situation if you're the one calling the cops, you know, telling them whether they have a knife or a gun or whatever, or are they mentally ill, you know, they have to know what's going on, you know, because if they don't know, they come and they have to assume that that person could kill them because mm-hmm. they're, they're like in the military, you know, it's a war whether we want it or not. And there's a lot of drugs out there and people are going crazy. And so I don't think that we should um, just blame them. I think we should come up with solutions like maybe the military should uh, provide some people or something because it's getting to the point now where, uh, you know, the Mexican cartels and all these other people are trying to take over. We see all this stuff going on now, and the government is is not really addressing it like they should. But, you know, we should... Uh, we should all try to cooperate and try to uh, find solutions rather than looking at the problem. Donna, thank you for, for calling in with those comments. Uh, military intervention uh, is one idea that, that Donna has. Uh, interesting, interesting thought. And uh, David, I, I, I'd like you to comment here again. You know, Donna stresses like this idea, you know, we all know it's tough out there for these law enforcement officers to stress and, you know, they're, they're constantly in harm's way. We all get that. We all get that. But um, at the same time, you know, there are these concerns. And, and what are some models? What's working? What are some examples of some communities that, that are really doing it right when it comes to safe, good, quality, community-minded policing? On, on that, starting in about 1999, and we, were, we introduced the uh, community-oriented policing uh, training for tribal communities, and we went, uh, I believe we attended over 350 tribal communities 
of the object of community policing is collaboration, which is to build, bridge that gap between police and communities. Obviously, there are communities where, where the police are on one side and the community members are on the other, and the goal is how do we bridge that gap? How do we get everybody to build understanding and develop trust and and uh, and and solve problems together. And it was very successful training. A lot of communities follow that path. In fact, many communities still do follow that path. Our work with the MMIP cases follows that exact same pattern, uniting police with victim services, with the community and with the media uh, when in the interest of hoping to get a, a successful recovery on a missing person case. And, and of course, that can apply to any, to any level of, of crime or, or event that takes place in, in any community. Now, David, you use the word success, and, and I'm curious, how do you measure success with regard to these uh, methods that you're describing? Anytime you can make a community, community member less fearful, your your caller Donna uh, expressed it quite well. I thought um, if if you can make a community community member feel safer, feel less fear, if you can show a reduction in any uh, crime or any activity that is creating fear or or uh, uh, disruption in a community, you are being successful. And so when we do the community-oriented policing training, the tribal communities look at and they identify. What, what is causing fear or what is the crime picture in your community, whether it's uh, uh, drug sales, whether it's uh, assaults, whether it's DUIs, whatever it is. And then they focus on ways to address those as a community in harmony with the police rather than just expecting the police to handle it. Uh, everybody gets involved. And so uh, any measurement like that is, is a success in a community-oriented policing concept. Okay. Uh, it does seem difficult, though. Uh, you know, how do you measure if somebody feels uh, less fear, though? That does seem to create challenges. Uh, so any listeners that have uh, ideas with regard to that question or, or even just yourself, I mean, do you, do you take that as, as progress for the police if you feel less, less, uh, less fear? in your community? What does that look like? What does that mean to you? If you have a comment, question, give us a call, 1-800-99-NATIVE. I'd like to bring our third guest into the dialogue now. Speaking with us from Winchester, Idaho, is Martin Antone. He's a criminal justice advisor, and he's an enrolled member of the Oneida Tribe of Wisconsin. Marty, welcome to the show. Segolia, good morning. Well, Marty, I, I want to ask you uh, a similar question that I asked David. What do you see as primary challenges facing tribal police departments? Well, like Dave said, um, each reservation, each tribal law enforcement is unique and different uh, culturally and geographically, demographics, um, the size and distance and population. So each one's so unique that it requires a unique approach for each one and based on you know staffing resources funding uh, uh, mutual aid agreements cooperation you know public law 280 has an impact um, federal uh, guidance uh, state uh, governors executive orders all that plays a role in uh, operations for tribal law enforcement so it's very complex let alone it has extra layers than a non-tribal agency, uh, for example, like a county, where they're not all related, and they may 
or may not have resources, you know, like other agencies to apply to, you know, the right administrative leadership to identify the issues and complexities on that reservation to target. Okay. So very complex. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like, and you know, an overarching question for our show today in light of, of this recent killing there of Tyree Nichols and uh, so many others. So over the last few years, we just, it seems like every few months, you know, one of these cases comes up and um, so I, you know, I think we have a lot of people that are just really disillusioned and and I want to ask, I mean, is it, is the trust, has it been broken to a point that it's unfixable or is it still possible for, for law enforcement and the public to come to a mutual understanding where we all benefit? Well, um, you know, that's a very good question. One bad apple can destroy an entire agency, the credibility, the longstanding previous community policing programs and initiatives and outreach and so forth. Um, how I see it, in my perspective is, you know, there's a shortage of trained um, people to identify and understand, you know, the community's concerns for accountability, transparency, and outreach into the community. So it's, it's very complex too, but overall, um, we have to have hope. So, you know, like tribes, they can pick their own leadership. Um, and what I found out, and getting back to your question about, you know, somebody where police ended up killing a person that was heinous uh, that we saw in the video, we didn't even go back further to the one in Minneapolis. It boils down to a specific incident location and officers on site that that original incident the underlying issues and this has been like researched by people all over the united states and canada and all over the place in law enforcement the responsibility was the supervisor of those staff the two largest tort claims are um fail to train fail to supervise so with that okay. being said, you know, this is a segue too. I can tell you, you know, the one in Minnesota, the officer that was kneeling on his neck had, what, I think approximately 17 use of force complaints. That weighs on the immediate supervisor's shoulders right there. You know, to identify underlying issues, you need to dig down and find out, you know, What's wrong with this picture? How come people ain't complaining? These red flag issues, which we're hearing that are being called in, you know, people not feeling safe on the reservation, um, are, you know, had information where they feel like they're hostage, either by the way uh, federal law, public law 280 is set up, where, you know, a tribal member can only go back to the tribal police. They can't talk to the state unless it's a non-tribal suspect. So, you know, I, you got to have almost a paralegal background to figure out jurisdictional who's responsible for what, who gives the services, and so forth. But when it comes down to something that heinous where somebody just gets 
assaulted by law enforcement, that's going to take 10 or 15 years to fix. People will not forget that. And a matter of fact, you know, I agree with some of the concerns of people, you know, with their issues with tribal law enforcement. But, you know, we can't throw the baby out with the bath water in the tub. So try to make lemonade on lemons. You want to be able to utilize, um, if you haven't used outside resources uh, like Crytech, who provides mentoring and assistance, uh, worked with, you know, there's like one that I'm familiar with, um, Stephen Perry, a statistician for uh, DOJ that worked special projects where he had reached out to all the tribes. Okay. Evidence-based information. Marty, oh, please keep, please uh, hold on to that thought. We do have to take a short break, but I want to let you finish when we come back. Support by the American Indian College Fund. The American Indian College Fund provides millions of dollars of scholarships to thousands of Native students every year. Tribal citizens of every age and experience are eligible. The deadline for applications is May 31st, and you can find everything you need to apply at collegefund.org. That's collegefund.org, or by phone at 800-766-FUND. Education is the answer. You are listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. If you have a comment or question for today's show about holding law enforcement accountable, you can call us at 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. We're speaking with Marty Antone, and he is a criminal justice advisor. And Marty, one thing that I feel is really coming across loud and clear on our show today uh, from all of our guests here is that we really don't know like what the answer is here. I mean, you know, we hear these, these kind of common cliches like, Oh, only one bad apple is all it takes. And we've all heard that before, but yet, you know, what's the answer then? How do you get rid of that bad apple? And, you know, the supervisors are accountable and, you know, so again, I just, uh, it, it just seems troubling that, uh, we're still here after so many years, still struggling with these same issues and these same events, and they just keep reoccurring, reoccurring. We have this pattern. So I want to let you go ahead and finish what you were sharing earlier. Uh, you were talking about some models that, that seem to hold some promise. Yes, there's there's resources out there. Uh, Crytech, um, the National Statistician of Special Projects, Stephen Perry. There's a lot of great evidence-based data that helps identify shortfalls um, with certain you know agencies throughout the United States. Um, one thing that came to mind was, uh, you know, there has to be um, an awakening on a community or a reservation or anywhere throughout the United States that, you know, the, the tribal membership is the guiding of the focus of services, budgets, um, staffing, uh, for agencies. There needs to be uh, a safe environment where the community can come in, put tough conversations on the table with the criminal justice system. And, uh, you know, back to what Dave said, you know, I, uh, eliminating the police will double the amount of bad stuff that happens in the community because that will be exploited and it will embolden 
people with bad behavior. It will embolden them and make it worse. And we've seen that in the news. The other thing is that, you know, you can't just lump law enforcement. You have to put the prosecutor's office in their courts, corrections, social services, uh, client services, probation, parole. That's supposed to be a team that works together collectively to identify the underlying issues for each uh, jurisdiction, agency, or community. Um, it takes great leadership to keep them focused on the needs of the community. So going back to the question of hope, there's resources, there's availability of experts, statisticians that can help guide. There's funding. I just saw a posting by um, Bureau of Justice Service or, or one of the three-letter agencies that's providing funding for cameras. The totality of all those resources, training, and leadership helps mitigate terrible things that can happen. Okay. And in, in my opinion, it's up to the membership to bring that forward to the elected, you know, elected officials, wherever they may be, to recognize those concerns and safety issues of the community. And if people are getting paid good money in some areas, some agencies, to do that, I find that most of the victims, family, and so forth, sometimes investigate more than law enforcement does. Okay. All right. Uh, so Marty, uh, definitely a, a call there for more community action, more community engagement, uh, broaden out that uh, net of stakeholders. Let's go to the phones now. We have Shanupa listening on Keeley in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. Shanupa, hello. Hey, thank you for having me back on. And give me a brief minute. I'm going to do this real fast. You know, law enforcement here on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation lack the basic life skills, okay? So the gentleman that was talking about, you know, civic improvement, it'll never, ever have that circumstance of a need until you clean the department up. That's where it starts. My grandfather here on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, when he was alive, he was the chief of police. His name was Roy Martin. And Grandpa only had seven officers under his belt, including himself, there was eight. And each officer patrolled two districts at a time, and we had no crime, there was no thievery, no drugs, nothing. All of this stuff was created by how these perfections of colonial policies are forced upon our people. We don't think like Jota. We don't talk like Jota. That's the perimeter guard, okay? And if you go back to traditional... Warrior societies like Strongheart and the Kit Foxes, they can police the police, but it's never a first until that's challenged. So I really back to you and thank you for having us on the show. Ho -ho. You bet, Chanupa. I really appreciate that call today. Let's take another call. We have Jennifer listening on KUNM in Peralta, New Mexico. Jennifer, you're on the air. Hello. I just wanted to call in to say that I think that the root of all ills with the police department is a lack of education because both teachers, social workers, psychiatrists, all of us require four to eight years of post-secondary education. I think if policemen had to take more courses in adolescence and child psychology and, and drug addiction and biology and to understand the effects of today's ills and diplomacy and racism, and if police were required a four-year degree, like many other professions that work with people, I think you would solve the problem of all of the issues with the police department across the board, both tribal and otherwise. 
Jennifer, thank you for that call as well. Appreciate it. That's Jennifer in Peralta, New Mexico. Uh, We're going to go ahead and bring in our next guest on the show. Joining us from Minneapolis, Minnesota is Mike Forsha. He is the chairman of the American Indian Movement in Minneapolis. He is Bad River Band of Anishinaabe from Bad River, Wisconsin. Mike, welcome to the show. Anin, miigwech for the invite. It's an honor. You bet, Mike. And you're up there in Minneapolis, and you know so much of what we're talking about today really, really got started after uh, the George Floyd uh, murder a, a few years ago. So. I want to ask you, you know, how has, uh, how is the mood, how have some of these issues been impacted since those protests back in 2020 there in Minneapolis? Well, um, the eyes of the world are still on uh, Minneapolis, I believe. Um, We just have a new chief of police, Brian O'Hara. But we were right in the middle of the... uh, the city burning and um, the protests, the riots. I was standing right there. I have video of the uh, third precinct going down, target across the street burning, um, just the whole city, Minneapolis and St. Paul burning. And then, of course, afterwards, you couldn't get the police. You could hardly call. You wouldn't see them around at all. And, and what was that like? I'm sorry. So, what was that like when there were there was no police presence? Was that for most people, such as yourself, did you consider that a good thing, or, or was it a bad thing when that changed? Well, you know what? Uh, in our communities, especially the urban communities, the poor communities, um, at that time, that's when we needed the police the most. That's when we needed to be protected the most. And right after that, um, the city allowed the American Indian Movement and a black organization from the north side, the only two organizations allowed to stay out during the curfew because we were out there protecting our community. And we had no fires on the south side. Um, In our community, we saved our buildings. We lost one school. Um, But we had hundreds of people out there, Uh, not just the American Indian Movement. We had the Little Earth Protectors out there. We had um, just people, you know, our, our community came together and um, and we protected our community. We made sure that there were no uh, riots coming down the street. And they were. They were headed right this way and they put a stop to it. And there were people who were apprehended. Um, they called their parents and said, come and get them. You know, some kids from uh, Wisconsin. Most of these guys were outsiders who started this stuff. Um, and so, yeah, that's when we needed the police, but they were nowhere to be found. And then a lot of them applied for PTSD money, and we lost even more money. Mm-hmm. Now, Mike, uh, this is interesting that AIM uh, was able to provide these protection, play this role of, of protector there, because that, that is really the history of AIM. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, AIM was originally founded there in Minneapolis, and it was uh, as, a, as a safety watch to protect Native people from police at the time. Yeah, exactly. Um, AIM was started here because of the brutality of the Minneapolis Police Department. And um, and I myself was attacked by the Minneapolis Police, and I got a $125,000 settlement um, because 
And, and I, I highlighted in yellow on the police report all the lies they told. The only spots that were not live were the, uh, my name, my address, the location. And, um, and yeah, I won a lawsuit against them. And we do the, the May Day Parade every year for like the last 15, 20 years here in Minneapolis. We do security. But we also have to work with the Minneapolis police because they're doing security as well. And the very last one we had before the uh, COVID outbreak, the, one of the cops who I went up to because we have to work with them was the guy who attacked me. I asked him, I said, do you remember me? He put his head down and he said, yes, I remember you, Mike. He said, I'm sorry. I'm no longer on the street. I'm in internal affairs. I'm this. And, um, and I said, you know what? I accept the apology. I shook his hand. Um, and... The new chief of police, Brian O'Hara, um, a friend of mine, um, Jolene Jones, and her husband set up uh, a walk through Little Earth. It's the projects here in the South Side for Native Americans. And we walked through Little Earth. We told him our, we got to the garden, and we told him our collective history with the Minneapolis police and how AIM started here. And I told him my personal history how I was attacked, how I knew what it felt like to have a knee of a Minneapolis cop on my neck. And he gave me assurances right then and there that things were going to change. And um, I showed him a video that I had taken of the Minneapolis police when I talked about um, some drug dealing that was going on. And the cop gets out of the car, and I have video of it. And he says, there's nothing we can do. Our hands are tied. I said, who's tying your hands? Well, the mayor, the city council, the governor, they don't want us. If we were to pull him out and something were to happen, the press would switch it to where an innocent black man was assaulted in Minneapolis. I said, well, why would you have to assault him? Well, that's how they would do it. That's how they would spin it. And they don't want Lake Street to burn again. So I said, we're out here. Uh, supplying Narcan to as many people as we can to try to save their lives from the drug overdoses, but you're sitting here doing absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing. So then the city council asked for a copy of that tape. The mayor asked for a copy of the tape. The Office of Police Misconduct asked for a copy of the tape. And when they, they had a Zoom meeting and they put me under oath and they asked me questions about that video. And, of course, the report came out later on that, yes, Minneapolis has been attacking black and native uh, population higher than the white people. And there's a history of it. There's a pattern of it. Of course, we already knew that. We already knew what the outcome was going to be. And um, okay. so Mike, after I... that, he invited me to be the one to open up when he was sworn in to the public. He asked me to be the one to start the ceremony out. I was unprecedented. They all stood while we sang the AIM song. The mayor, the, the chief of police, the the city council. Um, and now I'm planning a meeting with my community, the Indian community, the chief of police, elected officials, um, okay. native okay. police. And Mike, so I'm, can I'm sorry to... I'm sorry to interrupt you. This is it's, this is a, a, an amazing story, and and I, I really am enjoying listening to you. But I just what I'm hearing here um, is some sort of a model of volunteer 
community pol policing, what you're describing here with AIM and some of these other organizations. And I'm curious to, to know your thoughts. Do you think this is something that could be scaled into other communities uh, all over the country and, and other communities where there are native people? Well, I think it should be. And we have a large Somali community here, too, and they should have their own patrol. And the, and the thing is, is, when they said defund the police, it was a bad slogan. It should have been transform the police because I'm involved in transformative justice. And so if those funds for that they were spending out this militarization of the police departments would go to the communities that are hurting the most. So those people out there aren't stealing and they're not doing drugs and they're, 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 the resources are going to them. They need those resources as opposed to giving it to the police so they can just keep an eye on them. And the police should live in the community. Minneapolis, most of the police don't even live in Minneapolis. They live somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's absolutely what should happen. They should have community patrols who are supported by the city and some of those funds that are going to the police now should go to those people so that they can keep a better eye and they know what's going on. They do their, uh, their community patrols. Okay, okay. And there are times we need the police. When you have uh, carjackings, we have hostage situations. Um, right. There, there's right. all kinds of times where you actually need the police. Okay, um, Mike, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I still want to bring Stephanie. We, we have to wrap up the show in about another minute. But Stephanie, if you could, um, Mike says it's not about defunding the police, but transforming the police. Are you on board with that? Yeah, I mean, the way Mike's describing it, to transform the police means to take the money from them and put it back in, into the communities that are divested because of the presence of police. So absolutely, I think they have looted our communities for long enough. And uh, I'm not married to the slogan of defund if transform means the same thing, which is to take monies that they have um, wrongly allocated for police and to give them to the most vulnerable people in our communities. That will make us safer. That actually okay. is the practice of abolition. All righty. Uh, this has been a really thought-provoking conversation about trust and law enforcement in Native communities. I want to thank all of our guests and callers today. Join us tomorrow as we talk to Native cyclists about the benefits of bicycles. I'm Sean Spruce. As people seek to know diverse cultures, tribal museums and cultural centers grow more popular. So the Institute of American Indian Arts, who support this show, now provides a Master of Fine Arts in Cultural Administration. Focused on social equity and support of cultural community growth, this program combines administrative tools and techniques with socially engaged leadership, blending institutional skills and community outreach programming. Deadline to apply is February 15 at iaia.edu slash mfaca. Are you a Native American health care provider, recovery counselor, social worker, domestic and sexual abuse advocate, or traditional healer working in Native American communities? Dr. Ruby Gibson will begin a six-month advanced immersion in healing historical trauma. This online masterclass looks through the lens of a seven-generational recovery approach to provide powerful, proven modalities and is offered tuition-free to tribal members. Registration deadline is March 24, 2023. Info at freedomlodge.org who support this show. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico, 
by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.